Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan. And on this week's episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast, we are going to be talking about parenting for social justice and social change. And I'm really excited to have my guest who has written a beautiful book on this topic, Dr. Tracy Baxley of Social Justice Parenting, uh, an amazing account on Instagram and a beautiful philosophy. So Tracy, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Will you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yes. Hey, Laura. I'm happy to be here. I am Tracy Baxley, and I am, I guess, my number one job is being a mother of five. And I am also a professor and consulting and coach. And I work with families around issues of race, racism, raising human beings who are more compassionate, more kind, and who want to make, be change agents in the world. Yeah, I love that. It's I think that it's one of the beautiful things I have always loved about your account and that I'm, as I've been reading your book, it's a beautiful mission to be thinking about how can we not only raise kids who love themselves, who feel as if they belong in this world and in our family, but then also go out and create that sense of kindness and belonging out in the world. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. That's the ultimate goal, right? We raise kids in our homes with our own values and our own core values and our ways of being inside the home. But we also have to be conscious that those are the things that they walk out of our homes with. And those are the things that they take with them when they, when they leave us. And so how do we start creating this change in our homes so that they create these same changes in their communities and, you know, eventually in the world? Yeah. Okay. So when we think about the name of your Instagram account and the book is Social Justice Parenting, what does that mean to you? I think it's just a way that we intentionally kind of show up in our parenting role that's purposeful and that it really is about raising children who I say care and care deeply, who love radically, who can show up themselves and others, raising kids who are consciously more kind and more compassionate and who want to do good in the world. I think the more that we are intentionally working on these things in our homes, the more that these things become natural and normalized for our kids as they enter into the more public spaces. Absolutely. And why is this so important? Why should we 
take this on as an, like an intentional value as parents? I think we're seeing a world right now so divided, almost more than ever. And I think as we see injustices around us, as we see that we can't find middle ground, I think now more than ever, we need to be raising children who learn how to compromise, right? And, and to show up for others, because I'm really afraid about the direction that we're going in yeah. as a country, as a nation. And if we don't start to kind of write this train a little bit through the way we're raising our children, the next generation won't really have a chance to learn what it means to give of yourself, right? To be a little bit selfless, to see others as our own in order to really be able to see the humanness in all of us in order to be able to make the changes that we need in the world. And I know in, in a selfish way, I look at that, Laura, I need your kids yeah. to know who my kids are, right? So we need to think about the way we raise our children as a part of a village, a human village, that raising and those values start in our own homes for them to be able to do that in the world. It starts early, very young, right? I had a, a listener reach out to me when she found out that I was interviewing you and asked, you know, so she's got little ones, infants and toddlers, you know, two-year-olds. And she's just wondering, okay, so where do I start with this? Where do I, like, beyond getting your book, which everybody listening should go do that right now, hopefully buy it from an independently owned bookseller. But if Amazon is what you got, <laughs> go get it there. But what is it that we can do when we've got really young children? Like, what are the first stepping stones? I think the very first thing you do is you have to be honest with yourself about your own feelings, right? So there's a lot of self-reflection that needs to happen about your own childhood, about your own biases, about your own experiences, and being able to unpack those honestly in order to be more intentional about the way you show up with your kids. So it really starts before you even really interact with your kids around things. Just like anything else with conscious parenting, right? It always exactly starts with right. us. And I think the bottom line is if we think about the development of kids and there's been studies that show kids as early as six months really recognize facial features and they gravitate to people who look like them. And then by the time they are in preschool, they have developed that in-group bias, right? So that they think that the people who look like them are more important, are better friends. Those are the ones they want to be around. And then by the time they hit early grade school, they recognize that with color, with race comes power and privilege. And even kids of color recognize that white children have more power and privilege. So we're talking, if they're already toddlers, if they're already preschoolers, they already have ideas about race. Um, long before we may even have those conversations. That's why it's so critical, right, that we start proactively and very early allowing the discussion of differences, of noticing that's very natural for a child, and then starting to have those conversations. One thing I love about your book is that you have this whole section of conversation starters, which I just love, especially parents like me who are white and who grew up not having those conversations. I grew up in a home where we were actively discouraged from having those conversations because that was the colorblind ideology was the thing in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I think with 
good intentions. My parents had good intentions. They really, you know, my mom grew up in a home that there was lots of active racism and she was attempting to counter that with us and unknowingly sent other messages. I love that you are giving us the words that we might not know how to start. So I really appreciate that. Are there like other things that we can be doing to, with our kiddos? I just want to touch on something that you just Okay, said, Lord, please do. Like, for parents who grew up in the same way, because a lot of us did, right? But there's a lot of messaging in that silence. Oh, so much. And, yes, yes and so much. you're walking away with ideas whether you say something or not. And I always say, don't you want them to have your ideas about what race is and not media, not other family members, not their friends. And so I think probably the worst way of showing up in this space is not saying anything at all. There's a study that a teacher, I think it was Northwestern did the study where a teacher was reading a book because we all say, okay, read books is a great place to start. And it is a great place to start, but not if you're just reading the words on the page. Yeah. You really have to unpack what's going on, point out skin color, talk about what that means. And the study basically had a teacher reading the story and to half of the one group of kids, she read it and say, we don't see color, right? We're all the same. You know, we love each other. And then the, the other half, of, she actually said, race, these kids are Black, these kids are Asian. Race is a big deal in our country. We have to really unpack what that means. We have to have conversations around it. We love differences, but she actually used the word race. Mm -hmm. she, and then the kids had a kind of like a post-test on their ideas and their biases. And the studies show that the kids who actually had the real words about race were more able to identify biases later. So our kids don't recognize this vague language that we often use. And we really have to be really concrete, age appropriate, yes, but very concrete in the way we talk to our kids about race early. Thank you for sharing that study with us. I think it's so important to bring the research into this piece of things. What I love too about your book is it invites that self-reflection of, you know, when we are leaning towards the vague language, when it feels more comfortable to go to that vague language, that that is a moment that is inviting self-reflection. What is it that makes so uncomfortable, for example, for white parents to say that child is black, that's a black child, and to use it with a capital B. Like, what is it that makes us, that's anti-blackness showing up in our bodies, in our frame of reference, that, that somewhere along the line, we got the idea that we can't say that. And, and that's just the reality of it. And I love, too, that you invite the knowing better and doing better and the, the not marinating in shame and guilt Figuring it out, acknowledging it, moving on, doing better. Thank you for bringing those up that we can't allow the way our bodies feel to dictate how we show up for our kids. Like we even have to talk about it. I feel a little bit scared to talk about this topic because it wasn't talked to me. Grandma and grandpa didn't talk to me about it. They talked to me about it, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to do better and do differently because I want us to have a conversation where you're not afraid to talk about it. So a lot of times as parents, right, we, our own experiences, our own anxieties, we project that onto our kids. Yeah. And I call that the fear-based parenting. Mm -hmm. right? We are a 
afraid to allow our kids to think and to feel and to have discussions around. And we just kind of shut off their natural curiosities of asking questions, trying to figure out the world around them. And then we teach them that it's not okay to talk about it. We can't talk about race when we're afraid to have those same conversations. And then we perpetuate the same. Mm -hmm. And we're just passing it down the line. You said something there that reminded me of another piece that I love in your book that I wanted to pull out because it is critical in, you know, any way we're looking at parenting, shifting from fear to radical love. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that piece and why you have it so front and center in your book? Yeah, I think a lot of us, especially when it comes to hard topics like this, we live in this idea of fear. And I think the fear is because, you know, it may be change is hard, right? Um, talking about something that makes us uncomfortable in general, it's yeah. hard to have conversations with our children. We want to protect them. We want to keep them safe. And part of that is because of the fear of what's out there, right? talk about this idea of being able to have conversations about what's going on beyond your front door or your gated communities because we want to keep them from the truth. And so we keep them in this bubble. We are really denying them the opportunities to make choices, to problem solve, to grow as human beings, to uh, work on being more compassionate and kind when people are different. And so this protection or anxiety that we feel is really keeping them from growing um, and being good people. And so I really believe in this power of showing up with radical love, which is means really the bottom line is I'm not parenting for my own kid. I am parenting from a space that all kids belong to me in some way. And it is my responsibility to teach love in my own children so that love radiates to everybody else outside of my home. I love that. In fact, that piece of part of social justice parenting is not just considering how we're showing up for our children, but how we are showing up for all children. Yeah, because we need each other, right? We do. We're all in this together. Absolutely. And if we don't start making those small changes in our homes so our kids really believe that, we're going to get more of the same. Yeah, absolutely. You said something just before about raising kids who are good people. And I was kind of curious about if you can talk a little bit about what's the difference between being a good person, which most of us are, and being pro-justice. When we raise good people, we raise them to be kind and to do no harm, right? Mm -hmm. When we raise pro-justice children, we are raising them to intercede when harm is being done. Yes. So it's more active, right? Kind mm. it's great. Raising good kids is great, but we want to raise kids who are more proactive in their kindness so that they are really seeing things from other perspectives, that they're really wanting to be upstanders and that they see kind deeds and empowering and standing with others as something that's normal mm-hmm. and it's what we do. There is a difference. And I think that there's part of this that is modeling and then also actively teaching our kids what to do, like how to intercede in a way that is safe. Because most of my friends who are folks of color and who are black have memories of being in school and having microaggressions or actually big racist aggressions perpetuated in school. And there were bystanders. There were kids around them. 
I think that for folks like me who have white kids, I want to actively teach them young how to intercede and stand up for their friends and for what's wrong. Do you have any tips for those of us who are in that position, who really want to raise those activists, who raise kids who know like that they have power and privilege and that they can use it even when they're yeah. quite young? I, let me tell you a story that's in the book. Yeah, uh, that came to mind when you when you talked when you said that. So my girlfriend and I we were the only two blacks. We were in this eight week boot camp um, one summer before we had kids, and we worked out. He did three times a day workout through that time together with this group of people. We got close, like a little family. Like even on the weekends, we'd go to. The, it was an ex marine who ran the boot camp. We would go to his house for happy hour and hors d'oeuvres. It was like a little bit of a family at that point. And the last day of the boot camp, as we were like doing our last minute stretches, he asked his children to go pick up all of the equipment. And the girl who probably was like 10 or 11 went right away and started picking up all the equipment where the son kind of got up slowly, dragging his feet, his body kind of hunched over. And the girl turned around to her brother and said, stop being lazy or stop walking like a, and she said the N word in that moment, you know, of course, silence, everybody's wide eyed, um, looking at each other. And then obviously their eyes went to my girlfriend and I, who were the only two black people in that group. And when I look back on that moment, of course, I unpacked it with the kids and with the instructor, but in that moment, I needed an ally, right? Mm. I needed somebody who raised somebody to say, hey, that's not right, or I don't think that's appropriate, or I stand with you, or I'm sorry that happened to you. I would never allow that to happen to you again, or something. Mm -hmm. But nobody said anything because of that fear. And so this idea of what you're saying is for us to raise the next generation who won't be those people, who will learn to stand in solidarity with and empowerment with people who are being marginalized in some ways. And I think the best way that we can start doing that at home is to literally role play it. Yeah. So you have these scenarios, maybe it's a Friday night thing, right? We're having movie night pizza, and then we're going to pull sticks from a jar to role play different events that could happen and actually having kids have the words to say when things happen, because in that moment we get afraid and we're not, we don't know what to say, but if they practice this thing at home, it becomes second nature that this is what I do. This is what I say. This is how I show up. So don't be afraid to have some of these moments at home that creates maybe some uncomfortableness at home so that when they're out in the world, it gives them a little bit more power, a little bit more strength to be able to stand up and have these conversations in the moment when they're happening outside of your home. So beautifully put. Tracy, thank you so much for sharing that story so openly to illustrate how powerful it is to raise people to be allies. The role-playing works and help. When my daughter, who's nine now, five, at her on the playground one day, a little boy in her class told two of her friends, one who was Indian and one who was Asian, um, that he didn't like them because they had brown skin. And she knew exactly what to say because we practiced it at home, like literally practiced those things. And so she stood in front of them, said, it's not okay to say that. It's not okay to like people 
based on the color of their skin or not like people go away and then comforted her friends and then went and got a teacher, <laughs> you know? So I was super proud Beautiful. of it, you know, but it's, and that's not a, like a cookie, like I'm not asking for, they get it. I think we can trust kids to get this early, Absolutely. young, Absolutely. you know, she was only five, you know, so, it's but amazing. they need practice, you know, they need the skill. It's not something they learn overnight, you know? By nature, they want to help. They ask the questions. I want to know what the problem is. I want to know how I can help. And when we don't allow them mm-hmm. these opportunities, when we're telling them to be quiet or shush, or we don't talk about those things, they then don't start trusting their instincts. And so we don't want to be the ones to squash that in our kids. No. And these little moments are really defining moments for who our kids can become um, when they enter the world. Okay. So I feel like we hit some of these pieces. I'm kind of curious about how folks learn more from you beyond this book. I know that you do consulting. Do you teach classes? Are there opportunities to kind of dive deeper in working with you? Yeah, I have two courses that are out now. One is a long, longer term course because it's not the book, but it's a lot of things from the book, an extension of the book, I would say it is. Yeah. Um, And then I have one quick, like, how to talk to your kids about race. So it's a smaller, quicker course. And mm-hmm. the other one is a little bit more in depth with a lot of worksheets and a lot of work that you should be. And I do have one-on-one clients that I work with parents. And also I have group clients. So there's mm-hmm. a group of moms who want to come around a certain topic or issue or parenting. Then I do that as well. And I also too, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits and corporations that are doing a lot of DEI work. Mm-hmm. That's all part of my belonging umbrella. So I do a lot of corporate work as well. Oh, beautiful. So I just want to work with anybody who wants to work in the space of belonging and being more compassionate, being more allowing people to show up as themselves. It's really important. So important. I feel like your book is this kind of essential guide to just parenting consciously and respectfully like we all want to raise good people people who stand up for it's right who knows what's in their heart who knows how to trust themselves and move out into the world to create a world that is better you know one thing that we didn't get to talk about entirely was this idea that you know i really believe that one of the most powerful ways that we as parents can impact the world is through our kids and through our parenting and i so appreciate that call that your book brings us to kind of look at that broader kind of broadening our perspective broadening our view of of what we do as parents yeah, and what our past experience has taught us and how we're showing up and modeling these things for our children every day. Yeah. And I'm a big, big believer in a family actively creating core values together because those core values, when you're out of line, you can always bring people back to the core values. When I'm behaving in a way that doesn't align with the core values in my house, I want my children to call me on it because if we are creating a space where belonging and safety is is important where you have each other's backs like you are your brother's keeper your sister's keeper is one of our core values and I'm not doing that in a way you need to be able to call me on it for us to come back in alignment and so I think that is kind of like the foundation for creating a family dynamic 
where we can see and do for others. Yeah, where we can, as a team, hold each other accountable and push our family as a group forward. Absolutely. Oh, that's so beautiful. Tracy, thank you so much for this conversation and for the gift of your work that you put out into this world. I hope that everybody listening goes and gets a copy of your book. I really appreciate your time and energy that you shared with us today so much. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate it being here and being a part of your audience as well. The honor is all mine. I was so giddy to get to talk to you today. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, That's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.